Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Good morning, everybody. How are you? That's great. Uh, I am Nick. I am the pastor of students, youth pastor, guy that hangs out with teenagers all the time, whatever you want to call me. And I am so grateful to be here this morning. And also, I want to, right at the start, just say thank you to you guys as a church. Um, We got back from the Romania mission trip a little while ago. And I do want to just show you one quick picture we did while we were there. So this is, in the background, you can see the Carpathian Mountains very, very beautiful place. It was probably about 78 degrees in the middle of the day when we took this picture. Yeah. There are places on the planet not like here. It's, it's crazy. Um, and these are, so you can see me in the, in the middle and the rest, you know, there's the other counselors, there's our team. Um, I think that's Julian on the, on the left side with his hand up really big and his daughter in front of him. Uh, What you can't see is the incredible level of anxiety resting in my shoulders because my wife forced us to run into the middle of the road, right? uh, The the camp entrance is like right to the left of this. She forced us to run into the middle of the road. This is uh, Eastern Europe where laws on the street are more of suggestions. Um, So the probability of some giant truck from Romania just barreling right through us. It's a lot higher than it is here. Uh, And so there is a car, you know, just 20 feet in front of us, you know, waiting. And so I'm filled with stress and anxiety, but Rachel's like, who cares? Just get in here and take a picture. And we survived. Um, And it it ended up being a beautiful picture, but that was us in Romania. What are you saying? Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Yes. Applause for my wife. Um, we had an amazing time. We got to do a lot of really great things. Um, it was a very, very special experience, especially, I think, for the, the team that went with us. Um, you know, normally we go and we finish, and there's a couple kids that are like, man, I really wish I could do that again. Uh, the others are like, man, that was great. Can't wait to get home. This was, for some reason, it was unique in that every single person that went on that trip has basically told me they're coming back. We're doing this again. Uh, it was wonderful and special, and I'm grateful to you guys as a church uh, for helping uh, support us, to get us there, for praying for us, and all of that. So thank you very much for letting us go and do this wonderful thing. There was one more thing I wanted to point out. None of this is part of the sermon, so don't expect me to tie this back together. Uh, I was watching, you know, we were doing worship, and I looked up and I realized something really cool. On the keys was my good friend William Reed, who was a freshman or a sophomore when I first got here. And then over here was my good friend Chris, who is currently in our high school program. It was just a nice little, you know, sandwich of, of youth being involved on the main stage. That was pretty cool. I felt good about that. I'm going to pretend that's applause for me and feel good about it. Um, Exodus 20:17, a very strange verse. We're going to read it and we're going to talk about it for a long time. Exodus 20:17 says, "You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's." All that neighbor stuff, for some reason, when I was putting this together, it made me think of um, 
of Seinfeld. I don't know why. Uh, because my brain is broken, and that's, I'm a kid of the 90s, and that's where my brain goes, to television and movies. I'm sorry, it's just who I am. Uh, the reason, of course, is because in that show, if you're not familiar with it, there's a, a guy named Jerry, and there's his neighbor, Kramer. And Kramer is constantly coming into Jerry's house and taking his things, right? Uh, using his apartment, blah, 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 blah. He's hilarious, and he always says the word neighbor. So for some reason, my brain went there. So we're going to talk about it. Uh, in that show, there are four main characters. There's Jerry, Elaine, George, and Kramer. And Jerry, Elaine, and George all, according to what I look at, in my opinion, suffer from extreme covetousness. They live their whole lives based on trying for, you know, to either meet up to a certain criteria of normalcy or to look like other people, be like other people, have the kind of success other people have. It's sort of the whole impetus for their being. Every morning they get up so that they can, without, without recognizing it, covet the people around them. Kramer really covets Jerry's apartment and the contents of his fridge. But beyond that, if you look at the way that that particular character lives his life, there's really very little covetousness happening there at all. He does crazy things. He covers his entire apartment in wood paneling. He uh, gets an enormous hot tub and puts it inside his New York City apartment. He tries to build levels in his apartment where he can walk up the stairs in this apartment with 12-foot ceilings. And he wears short pants with giant white socks. He does none of these things because he sees other people do them. He doesn't because he wants to. And he's labeled weird and he's labeled crazy and he's, he's just sort of the oddball character. But really, when you think about it, of the four, if you've ever seen this show, I think you would agree with me that Kramer is probably the most well-balanced, joyful, content person on the show, if you really think about it, which is kind of crazy because they set him up to be nuts. But in reality, he's sort of the one that makes sense. He's sort of the one that if I had to pick any of them, I'd rather be like him than anybody else. When I was in middle school, I, uh, and early high school, kind of went to a weird place. Um, I had just moved. I was, if you don't know me, I lived, my dad was in the military, so I was born in Spain, moved to California, Florida, Philippines, Hawaii, Italy, Germany. And so when I was in fifth and fourth and fifth grade, I was in Hawaii, and it was just a paradise magical land. Um, it was a beautiful place to live. I, I socially was doing pretty well. People knew me. They liked me. Um, I was, you know, I, it was good. It was a good life. And then we moved. In my sixth grade year, we moved to Italy right in the middle of my middle school times. And it was not easy. It was hard for me. Um, it's, a, it's a scary time to move when you're sort of in the middle of all these changes that are happening to you. And then your entire life changes. You move to a new continent across several oceans. It was difficult, and I did not handle it very well. Uh, I was, you know, I moved to this place, and I was still kind of the same person. I was an athlete, but in that area, not in the cool sport. You know, I played soccer, and nobody cared about that in, my, in, my, in that group. Uh, so I tried lots of things to fit in. Uh, I tried changing the way I, I talked. You know, I even tried, and I don't recommend it. I tried smoking cigarettes because that was what the cool kids were doing. However, I was so terrified of getting caught, I did it in secret, so nobody actually knew I was doing it. <laughs> I hoped that they would smell it on me, but it just didn't have the same cool effects. Um, I had a... I, the cool thing in those days... Is there anybody who was born in the 80s and lived in the 90s, sort of like in their, in their main years? Nobody. One person. Great. Good to know. I'll just cut all this. Um, 
No, the, for some reason, the cool thing, at least where I lived, was these giant sports, they're called starter jackets. Anybody? Some of you are pretending you know what I'm talking about. Um, I don't know why they were amazing. They were just the thing that if you didn't have them, you weren't allowed to be around people. Um, so I somehow convinced my parents, and I don't know if this was God sort of laying an Easter egg in my life, but the one I really wanted was a Dallas Cowboys one. I'd never been to Dallas in my entire life. I couldn't have named you two players on the Dallas Cowboys team at the time, but it was cool looking. So that's the one I wanted. So I got it. I got it and I wore it and I imagined the, the scene when I showed up to school that day would be record stopping and like everyone turning and being, oh my gosh, that kid's so cool. Look at his Dallas Cowboys star. I ripped it on the bus on the way there. Uh, big rip down the sleeve. Um, so I assume that if it wasn't ripped, that would have happened. Everyone would have thought I was amazing and my life would have been solved at that point. But for some reason, the rip ruined it. So that didn't happen. Um, it did not work. So I, I tried things like, too. I tried pretending, or not really pretending, but desperately trying to be into rap music. That seemed to be what all the cool kids were doing. So I tried to do that too. Of course, my parents were and still are wonderfully staunch conservative Christians. So purchasing that type of music was uh, difficult. And so I convinced them somehow, I think maybe I held my thumb on the parental advisory sticker that Bone Thugs and Harmony was a Christian group because they had a song called Crossroads. And I was like, look, it's about the crossroads that God brings us to in life. It was one of my absolutely amazing, stellar performances. Um, and it worked. Somehow they forked over the 12 bucks and I got it. And uh, I think I even opened the thing and like scratched off the parental advisory sticker in case they came looking at f for it at some point. Uh, so I memorized some of those lyrics, but then I realized how are cool people going to know that I'm listening to this if I have it in my headphones? There wasn't Bluetooth speakers I could walk around school listening to it so people knew. So I memorized a few lines so that I would put my headphones on, walk through the hallways, singing those, those lyrics so that people would know, oh, cool, Nick listens to Bone Thugs and Harmony. Plus, he's got that ripped starter jacket. He must be cool. I just want you to picture something for me real quick. I want you to picture this guy who is probably 13 walking down the halls in his ripped Dallas Cowboys starter jacket, uh, and I haven't mentioned this, but it's obvious, right? Sagging my jeans a little bit, because that was what people did. Uh, and uh, the problem was my parents wouldn't buy me the kind of jeans that did that, so I had to, like, unbutton the top button and, like, pull them down a little bit and then <laughs> strap the, butt, the belt a little bit tighter. Uh, so that's this kid walking down the, down the hallway with his headphones on, singing Crossroads with his sagging jeans uh, and his starter jacket with his Dallas Cowboys jersey underneath it. You know what, actually, we have a picture. I can show you. <laughs> Ignore those two girls. They're not important to the story. Um, it just happens to be my sisters. That's right. That's, I didn't have the jacket in this picture. I could not find a picture of me in the jacket, which is very sad. But that's the jersey that I got with it. I don't know who number eight was. Was he important? Sure, that's a person. Uh, definitely sagging my jeans, as you can tell. The belt is, I'm probably, you can see my right hand is sort of gripping my pants a little bit so that they don't actually fall down in the picture. But that, and there's, you can't see it, but there's a rat tail behind the neck there. Yeah, frosted tips, the whole deal, right? 
this guy, <laughs> this guy was desperate beyond belief to be accepted and to be appreciated and to be liked. Uh, for some reason, it didn't work out too well. Nothing I was doing was an attempt at originality. Everything I was doing was a copy of a copy of a copy. And surprisingly, copies of copies of copies of copies don't scream cool, original, or interesting. They just don't seem to really work. Nothing uh, was working. I coveted those cool kids so desperately. The other ones that seemed like all they had to do was just show up and everybody loved them. I tried to look like them, talk like them, be like them, everything. But I was a shining beacon of unoriginality and everyone saw me coming. One of the problems with coveting and, and letting that sort of guide your principles and daily decisions is that it kills originality. And when our desires and hopes are shaped by what we th- see in others, we lose our true sense of creativity. And the thing is, God built us to be creative. He built us um, in, in, in absolute perfect creation. I mean, he built nothing on this earth because he'd seen it before. But out of sheer original creativity, nothing that we see on this earth that God made is a copy of anything, but it is, in fact, the most original thing that exists. And we are one of those creations. We are one of those creations, that, yet we still seem to are drawn to unoriginality. We are drawn to copies of copies. The internet is a perfect example of this. It is filled with copies of copies. Everyone is just copying what they've seen, Others do, and then trying to put their own spin on it. The movies that we watch are all just copies. Who knows what the biggest movie of the year is this year right now? Anybody know? Shout it out. That is correct. Top Gun 2, Maverick. I cried. I can't, I'm going to talk about it, but I can't pretend that I didn't love it. I did. I saw it by myself, sat in the theater, and wept. Absolutely true. However... This movie is not an original story. It's a copy of a copy. It's a sequel of a movie 30 years ago that was great. But, I mean, how is it that in this year it is making so much money that 90% of few people in this room have probably seen it? It's just a copy of a copy. There's nothing original about it. But it is good. We can't deny that. It's wonderful. There's a danger to originality, at least as far as I think we see it. There's a danger to doing something new and fresh because it kind of puts us out on a limb without the protection of the thing that we copied, right? There's a danger to originality, and for everyone, it, it puts us in a situation where everyone can look at us and critique us, and we fear this. The problem is, isn't that kind of where God wants us, is out on that limb? He he never told us to follow the crowd. In fact, he told us to be a city on a hill, a light in a dark place. And how can we be a copy if we are trying to be a city on a hill? How can we um, be a city on a hill if we look and act like everyone else? How can we repent and turn from our ways if we're just going the same way that everyone else is going? We're terrified of being original, but we are also desperate to find it as well. Because see, God created us to be imitators, but not of each other. That leads to problems, but he created us to be imitators of him. John 13, 34 to 35 says this. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love 
for one another. Imitating people weakens our creative spirit, but imitating God in his love and adoration for people reignites that spirit. It's what makes Christians so original and unique on this planet, as he describes. Coveting is the very dangerous kind of sin because it leads us into so many other choices that lead to problems and sin and brokenness. Leads to ungratefulness, leads to comparison culture. And at the very end of this, we'll talk about one other little thing here. But ungratefulness, let's talk about that. When non-believers look in on us, Christians, and they wonder what's going on with us, and they see ungratefulness instead of a people striving towards contentment, why would they want what we have? Wanting what others have instead of what we've been given, that's ungrateful. My kids do this all the time, every day. And it's incredibly frustrating as a parent. Now, here's what I don't, I'm not looking for every morning my kids to wake up and say, oh my gosh, dad, you have milk in the fridge. Thank you. That is so considerate. I can't believe you did that. Wow. No, I, I don't care. But, well, maybe I do. Maybe I do want that. I don't know. I wouldn't be mad about it. Um, no, I, I don't want them to be grateful and thankful for every single thing. But at a certain point, it would be nice if sometimes they would acknowledge that I or my wife have done something good for them. You know, we, um, we sent them to Pine Cove in the city this last week, and there were a couple instances where I was like, you know, you could have just said thank you. You could have been, instead of complaining about this or complaining about that, you could have said, hey, Dad, thanks for taking us to Pine Cove in the city. That'd be great. It's never going to happen. But it would be wonderful if that did. It would make me feel good. It would make me feel nice. And there's a struggle in this, too. There's a struggle in this because I want to give good things to my kids. I want them to go to these camps. I want them to have these experiences. I want them to have nice things. But it seems like every time I give them something like that, it leads to more ungratefulness. The more I shower them with good things and gifts and kindness, for some reason, it seems to have the opposite effect that I'm hoping for. Nothing good can never come from giving people everything they want all the time. We know this. This is not a revelation. Nobody's going to write that down and, and tweet it later because it's the most obvious piece of information I'm going to give you today. No one watches Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and wishes they could be more like Veruca Salt, the kid that just wants everything and everything and everything. Nobody watches that and thinks that's the hero of this story. Nobody goes into a candy store with their kids and sees another kid throwing a fit and stomping their feet and falling on the ground because they want more candy and says, kids, this is what I want you to do. You see this kid? I want you to be like them. Nobody does that. Even the parents that do just give everything they want, they would still say, this is wrong. I don't like this. I don't want this. We know that doesn't work. However... Sometimes we want that from God. Sometimes I think I wish that God would just give me everything I want. That every time I pray for something, that God would just say, sure, Nick, you can have that. That all these secret needs and desires that I don't like to talk about with other people, God would just be like, sure, here. Despite the fact that I know that would be maybe the most damaging thing for me that he could do, sometimes I just still wish that he would do it. And that's kind of a problem. 
But maybe it's not everything. Maybe I'm not saying I want everything. Maybe I just want uh, to live in a better neighborhood. Maybe I just want a better car or a stronger retirement account. Okay, so let's say I want these things. Maybe I should work hard and go get them. But here's the other problem. That better neighborhood car, bigger bank account, all those things that I, that I think I should have, they might, if I got them, somehow, I don't know why, they might not silence the voice in my head that tells me I still need more things. In fact, it might just feed it make it louder. You know, some of the most content and grateful people that I know are some of what many of us would call poor people. Some of the most discontent and, and covetous people I've known are often among the wealthiest or at least the ones so desperate to be wealthy that it sort of guides their whole life. 1 Timothy 6, 6-11 through 11 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing with those, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I think there's a way to allow ambition to turn into ungratefulness. I'm not going to sit up here and tell you that you shouldn't be ambitious. I'm not going to be up here and tell you that you should not seek out these things in life and find success in your work or whatever it is. That's not what I'm here to tell you. But I, I want to tell you this. When I look at my bank account after my mortgage payment goes out or when Christmas rolls around and I see my kids' Christmas lists or when I drive by the lottery signs on the highway, I often allow myself to plunge into discontentment, dreaming of what it would be like to just be filthy rich. I stare at that lottery sign and I think, if only I had $300 million, everything would be fine everything would work out. Just 300 million, that's all I need to solve all my problems. In reality, I can't think of, I can't even begin to imagine the trouble and struggle that would come with a sudden influx of hundreds of millions of dollars into my life. Luckily, I don't think I'll ever have to deal with that problem, but I can't imagine how hard it actually would be and how damaging it truly would be if all of a sudden everything that I ever wanted and dreamed of was just at my fingertips. I'm not prepared for that. I'm not ready for that kind of responsibility. That would be madness. That said, if I win, you might not see me anymore. <laughs> so I'm left with this question. Would it be better to get everything I ever wanted or just be content with what God has given me? The answer is not really complicated. Of course it would be better for me to just find contentment in what God has allowed me to have so far. That's where I want to be. That's a far better struggle to deal with is finding that rather than constantly trying to get more things to solve the, the financial problems or to solve whatever it is that I think I have problems with. If I were to just find contentment rather than coveting all these other things, how much more fulfilling would my life be? Another thing that coveting leads to is this idea of comparison culture. I talked about ungratefulness, then we'll talk about this. 
Comparison culture kind of lives on the internet now. When I was growing up, it lived in like magazines and TV and commercials and stuff. But now we look at the internet and say, this is where comparison culture lives. We constantly see what others have, what others are doing, where they're going, and we want all of it. And they know it too, because Instagram influencers make millions of dollars simply by wearing the shirts they're given or wearing the products that they're given and saying, hey, look at this product. You need this. I mean, it's, it's a whole industry, this comparison culture thing. And all of us, including myself, have bought into it in a, in a certain amount of ways. We have all bought into it a little bit. You know, I recently saw the Mona Lisa up close. And my wife and I spent the rest of our time in that building asking this question. I don't know, what, what's the big deal? What, what is it? What's going on? Because we go in this room and there are literally dozens of people lined up to, to see this thing. And it's literally as close as you can get. It's like from me to this, to this camera right here. That's about as close as you're allowed to get to it. And they're lined up just so they can get to this point. And what do you think all of them are doing? Just take a guess. What do you think they're doing? They're taking a selfie. They're turning around and taking a picture of themselves with Mona Lisa. And what do you think they're doing with that picture five seconds later? Yeah, they're posting it. They're putting it out there in the world so that everyone who sees it will be like, what? That's not fair. How come that person got to be near the Mona Lisa? That's awesome. That person must be really well-cultured and really blah, blah, blah. It's just a bunch of nonsense. I, I was, you know, I had absolutely no intention of standing in that line because it was dumb. I stood off to the side and tried to take a picture. And there were people like who worked there who were literally trying to block my picture because I didn't stand in line. It's nonsense. Don't go. Just Google it. It's about the same thing. You can actually get closer if you just look at it on your phone. And then you don't have to deal with all the European BO in the line. I didn't say that. <laughs> look, we're in America. I can say it. It's a weird problem. I mean, we would be walking down the street and all of a sudden just get hit with a wave and we'd be like, who is that? Everyone looks well showered and tended to. I don't know. Okay, not part of the sermon. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Here's the thing I kept thinking is like, okay, let's, let's say we just took the Mona Lisa off of that wall and just went and put it on any other one. And we lined it up with 20 other portraits from that same museum. And we found somehow, magically, under a rock or a cave, people who had never seen the Mona Lisa before. And we put them in there and we said, all right, do me a favor. Just look at these pictures and find the one that you think is the most interesting and the most beautiful. If we're speaking in terms of reality, do you really think that even half of them would pick the Mona Lisa? Probably not. We walked through that museum and saw dozens of other portraits that were far more interesting and beautiful. But for some reason, that sucker is the most important painting of all time. And it's not because it's the most well-executed or the most interesting. It's because there are so many pictures of it everywhere that for years and years and years, we have imbued it with this level of importance and intrigue that the very idea that we stopped doing that would be blasphemous and people wouldn't, it, just, it would fall apart. Society would crumble if we stopped caring about the Mona Lisa, I think. I don't know why, but it would. 
the reality is if we just took the, the thing down and we put it back on a wall and we stopped printing coffee mugs and t-shirts with it all over the planet, in a couple years, it would just sort of fade into the background of the museum because people wouldn't be taking selfies with it anymore. People wouldn't be talking about how important it is. There wouldn't be entire movies based on the secret art inside of it. If you ever saw the Da Vinci Code, I didn't. I'm assuming the Mona Lisa is involved. If we just stopped trying to compare ourselves with the others that are seeing it, it would stop being so important. We can't keep wanting to do and be what other people are doing and being or we'll end up worshiping things that were never meant to be worshipped. Rather than comparing our lives to others, trying to be like them, I said this before, what if we sought out contentment instead? You, you know this and I know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Instagram and Facebook are really causing a problem in our lives. We all get it. It's kind of like how smoking was in the 80s. We all knew it was a problem, but we're just going to pretend like it's not a big deal. right? We all are starting to realize this might be a real issue, but uh, can I have a, a lighter, please? Like, we're, we're all realizing Instagram and Facebook might be causing problems, but my, I'm still going to get excited when my picture gets over 20 likes. That's still going to be very exciting to me. We can't... <laughs> and the thing is, as I mentioned before, these aren't new problems. It was, it was TV and magazines when I was a kid. We saw what those people were wearing and how they did their hair, and we wanted to be like them because it was obviously doing something good for them. I don't know how many people I've admitted this to in my life, but I routinely purchase Teen Beat magazine. I'm glad that none of you are making weird noises because that means you might have forgotten what that was. Uh, but it was a magazine that posted, that, that, that featured the young, hot stars of the time. So like Jonathan Taylor Thomas, anybody know who that was? He was a regular feature on that magazine. Um, I've got to be really honest. I'm so glad that I'm getting no reaction from you because it means that you don't know how much you should be judging me at this moment. Um, and that makes me feel warm and fuzzy. So thank you for at least holding it in. Um, and that, I, I, that, that kid that you saw on that picture was a desperate attempt not to just be like the cool kid, to be like the guys that I saw in those things. I wanted to be like them. I desperately wanted to be like them. These aren't new problems. I mean, even just a few years ago, we were all obsessed with that Chip and Jojo show and everybody was putting shiplap and concrete countertops in their house. You were all doing it or thinking about it. Don't lie. And it wasn't because you thought that was a good idea. It was because you saw all these people doing it and you were like, wow, that must be good. That must be great. I'm going to try it. I'm going to do it. Instagram, Facebook, whatever the new thing is going to be, it constantly creates a lack of contentment with our own lives. It really does. You know, I was thinking about this. Remember, remember trophies? Remember when those mattered? Remember when you actually felt like you accomplished something because you received a trophy? It doesn't really happen anymore because we just give trophies to everybody. Remember when gold stars meant something pretty cool in school, like you got a gold star and you were like, wow, I actually earned this. Those things were pretty cool. I remember getting trophies. I remember getting those gold stars. I remember how good it felt when somebody that I cared about said, good job, great work. We love those things so much that it seems now we've created a system where everyone gets them whether they deserve them or not. Because it felt so good, we might as well just give it to everybody. But of course, we all know it sort of robs the value of it. 
My, my son just completed a soccer season last spring, um, and the coach got the trophies late. You know how many people came to pick those trophies up? Zero. Because who cares? Every single person got one. Nobody cares. Nobody wants them. They don't mean anything anymore. There's a movie that came out a long time ago called Whiplash. It was about this, this drummer and his, his teacher. And one of the lines from that movie, it sort of rings around in my head, as it has been for years, was the, the teacher is telling the student, the two most damaging things you can ever say to anybody are good job. And I think about that a lot. I think about that in how I parent. I think about that in, in how I deal with, with students. And I think about how deep of a lie that truly is and how destructive that sort of thinking can be. That yes, we live in a world where we're just giving out trophies for people who show up to things, but the reverse of that can't be true either. Where we hold all compliment and all good things from people in hopes that they will desperately seek it so much that they will work so hard to receive something that they're never gonna get. That can't be right either. Holding back these things is just as damaging as just freely giving them. And when I think about that, I imagine the moment that I think I look forward to most in existence is that moment that, that somehow, I don't understand how it exists, but when I show up at the end of all things and I see you know, God standing there and he beckons me forward and I'm, and I'm there's gotta be at least six or seven seconds between the time that I get to him and he says whatever he's gonna say that I start wondering what is he going to say? Because not only do I know all of the things that I've done, but he is intimately aware of them as well. And I can't help but think that there will be this extreme feeling of nervousness and fear as I approach. And then the, the feeling of contentment when he puts his arm around me, probably a side hug because it's God. And he says, good job, kid. I think about that a lot. You know, because Christ, he offers us contentment. He's not sitting there holding back, waiting for us to do his good enough job so that he can finally give us a small crumble of contentment. But no, he offers it freely to us. The opposite of covetousness is contentment. You know, comparison culture tells us that contentment is the most dangerous feeling that we can have because then we stop going after what we want. But God says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me for rest. Ecclesiastes 4.4 says something very weird. Now, if you've never read Ecclesiastes, that's sort of the tagline of the book. This book is weird. That's kind of how Solomon should have subtitled it. This is something he says, and I, when, I was, when I knew I was going to teach on covetousness, I, I immediately went to this, and I've been thinking about it for a while. I want to share it with you. It says, I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, I do not think that this verse is saying that we should just quit, give up on work and give up on gaining more skills and getting stronger and better. I don't think that's what he's saying. Rather, I think 
He's asking us to evaluate and be careful of why we work hard. Because the truth is we cannot gain more approval from God by working hard. Just not going to happen. Just not going to work. You can, however, gain more approval from people. That's possible. And working hard enough and gaining the appropriate amount of skills and just pushing and pushing and pushing will eventually increase your influence with people. It will increase your approval from people. But what does that really get you? Better house, better car, better job, whatever. Who cares? As Solomon would say, vanity. A chasing after the wind. Again, I'm not indicting working hard as a problem. It's really just as God constantly reminds us, why are you doing it? Why? Why are you posting the selfie of you with Mona Lisa? Why are you doing everything you can to get that promotion? Why? It's not a problem that you do it. It's a problem of why. And I think that's what Solomon is pointing to here. Is that with everything that we are doing, we need to be asking why. Because if it is for the wrong reasons, it will only lead us down a path that we really don't actually want to be on. Vanity, a chasing after the wind. The more, in reality, the more we slow down, the more we stop, the more we seek contentment with what little we have, the more we carve out time from our work to stir up affections for the Father, the more we do those things, then we are on the path to becoming more like Jesus. Beginning, I said we're going to talk about ungratefulness and comparison culture, and there's one other little thing, and it's this. As far as I can tell, in my understanding of this passage, is that ultimately all the other Ten Commandments are tied up in this one. Because you see, when we covet, it makes us want to lie, makes us want to steal, makes us want to commit adultery, makes us want to murder, it makes us want to dishonor our families in order to get what we want. It makes us want to break the Sabbath so we can earn a few extra dollars to drag the name of God through the mud, to idolize the created over the creator, making gods out of ourselves and others. When we covet, we create opportunities for our hearts to go against all that God has asked of us. It is maybe the most dangerous thought we can allow our minds to dwell on because it opens us up to all these other failures. We look at Cain and Abel. Cain, who killed his brother Abel in the very beginning and in the books of Genesis. When he saw Abel receive God's approval, he began to covet. He made God's approval his Lord over God himself, desiring the gifts rather than the giver. When the Israelites were waiting for Moses to come down with these very rules from Mount Sinai, they began to covet. They began to covet the nations around them who had simple obvious gods they could see and touch that really didn't ask that much from them. When David looked down at Bathsheba, he began to covet. When Peter was in the courtyard and was asked if he knew Jesus, he began to covet. He began to covet those around him who weren't in danger, who hadn't put all their eggs in the Jesus basket. He began to covet his old life before he knew Jesus, his life of relative safety and ignorance a life he understood. Covetousness kills contentment, and likewise, contentment 
chokes out covetousness. Rather than striving after this worldly success that we also desperately want, the next better thing, wanting the lives we see from influencers, athletes, CEOs, the people who take selfies with Mona Lisa, the friend of yours who took a picture of someone famous at a coffee shop, and yada, yada, yada. What if instead of idolizing those we wish we could be like, we took that energy and used it to stir up gratefulness for the giver of our so many gifts? What if we set our sights on contentment rather than feeding our ambition? When we walk away from this covetous lifestyle, we are walking away from all that can divide us from our Savior. And when we walk towards contentment, we are walking towards the everlasting joy found in our Creator. You know, eventually middle school for me turned into high school. And I was absolutely exhausted. I remember a week where I just felt like there, was, there had to be something different. Something had to change because nothing was working. And I was just beating my emotional head up against a very real brick wall. And I was low and I was desperate. And I absolutely remember this moment because it was one of those maybe three or four moments where I felt the influence of God in my heart speak to me in some way that I could actually hear him. And I can just remember this feeling of God saying, just stop. I don't know why he said it. I don't know what it, I don't know what it was, but I remember in that moment sitting in my room, I remember exactly where I was and I just felt this feeling of him saying, stop. And it wasn't, it wasn't life altering. It wasn't like I heard the window shatter and him say this to me. It just was this feeling where he said, stop. Something changed in me that next day. Something felt different. I looked at the life around me and and began to apply that to everything I was doing. When I started to pick out what weird outfit I was going to wear, I just heard God say, stop. When I started to use the kind of language that I heard cool people using, I felt God saying, just stop. When the normal decisions that I was making at that time were leading me down the path that was leading me towards destruction, I just heard God say to me, stop. And things got better. Things improved. Nothing was perfect. There were still problems. I was still a mess in so many different ways. But I really did lay down that idea of doing what other people thought, what I thought other people wanted me to do and just trying to find what God wanted me to do. And it's, and it's something that has really kind of led me through life to the point where I am. And I still hear myself repeating that when I find myself in a place where I want to do what those guys are doing or I want to follow this crowd, I still hear God saying to me, just stop. And so if I have any advice to you about this idea of covetousness versus contentment, the best thing I can give you is to just stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop and think. Stop and wait. Stop and take a breath. Stop and take a minute. Stop and look back at what you're actually doing and wonder why. Whatever it is, just stop. we let covetousness into our lives, we're spreading poison over our soul, infecting every area of ourselves. The only antidote to this is contentment found 
in the pursuit of Christ who is waiting to tell us, good job, kid. Good job. Let me pray for you. God, and within me, there is a desire to find approval with people. God, within, I think maybe all of us, that desire lives. And I'm asking you now, if you would just help us to choke that feeling out with the contentment that you offer us. God, with the contentment that you are holding ready to give us, Father, help us to embrace it, to take it, to live it, and to stop all this covetousness that leads to so much brokenness. God, we need you. We cannot walk this life without you. We just ask all these things in your name.